welcome to episode two of Organic Matters Podcast. My name is Dominique, and I'll be your host. I love films. I love sitting in a movie theater, munching on popcorn, and absorbing information through a hopefully compelling visual experience. Films have always been a way for me to fully disconnect from the chaos of life and really get a chance to focus on a different world and different perspectives for a while. So, you can imagine that I was super stoked when I got the opportunity to get a media pass for the Victoria Film Festival through the campus radio station that I volunteer with. Huge shout out to CFUV 101.9 FM. I got to go see a bunch of really exceptional movies and eat a ton of popcorn and write reviews for the CFUB website. It was so much fun. This other really exciting thing happened. So because I was interviewed on CBC North for my first podcast episode about organic farming in the Yukon, if you haven't checked it out yet, go listen to it. It's pretty interesting. Um, So yeah, I was contacted by the National Film Board Media Relations, and they put me in touch with David Curtis, the director of a new film they thought I would be interested in, and it's called Sovereign Soil. So David is a really interesting and intelligent person. He lives off-grid in Dawson City in the Yukon, which, if you're looking at a map of the Yukon, is way north. So it's about four hours north of Whitehorse, So that's where the farmers that we spoke with last episode were from. Um, So he's four hours north of that, um, so he's up there. And in Dawson, he works as a carpenter, a commercial fisherman, and an artist, and he has recently released his first feature documentary called Sovereign Soil. And this film takes viewers on an incredible cinematic journey through the beautiful northern landscape surrounding Dawson City, and it also navigates topics of northern food security, food sovereignty, agriculture, and both indigenous and settler relationships to land. The film is really an ode to the beauty of those remote lands and the wisdom of those people who've chosen to call it home. To give you a quick preview, here's a clip from Sovereign Soil. There's a relationship with the land. And you know it in your heart. And you feel it and you live it. So it's personal. Dawson City, born and raised, when my grandparents grew up on the land, there was no grocery store. Their diet was the land that was around them. I mean, take a look around. We have snow, we have winter, and we're still selling fresh veggies. It's it's a joy of life. You need good food. I doubt if there's 2 or 3% of people that know where the food comes from. And that's caused some of the problems on the planet. Every plant you look at has something to give you. This is medicine tree, this one, eh? We have each found our place in the landscape, in the garden. For all this time, I've come to have a different relationship with this piece of land now. And it's very much based on shaping it. This land can sustain us. If we become closer to it again,
David and I met at the CFEV studio, and as much as we tried to center our conversation around his film, we just couldn't help but dive deeper into the issues that the film presented. So brace yourself for some deep politics. And without further rambles, here is my interview with David Curtis. My name is David Curtis, and I'm the writer-director of the feature documentary Sovereign Soil. And I'm down here in Victoria for the Victoria Film Festival, where it's showing. And I come from, I live uh, in Dawson City um, in the Yukon, which is at 64 degrees latitude. And I live actually just slightly outside of the town itself. It's called Dawson City, but it's really a town of about 1,500 people. It was once a city. And uh, I live out in the forest off-grid um, across the river from, from the town. Is that something that a lot of people do over there is live off grid? Well, you, you would be surprised at the number of people that do. Yeah. it's by choice. I mean, well, where we live in West Dawson, there's actually, I, I, I started to think about this on my, I'm touring with the film and I've told many people about this place and this part of the world and living off grid and what it's like. And I realized I live in a community of people that's probably about 150 people in total who live all live off grid. So all of us that live on that side of the river, we're not connected to the grid and no running water, no electricity, like, yeah. So yeah. it's, uh, it might be, I was thinking I should look into it because it might be one of the largest off grid communities in North America. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I never really thought about it until I was telling this to somebody and I was like, oh, we're actually, yeah, we're a full community. Like there's lots of people living over there. I mean, not, not like, we're not all crowded in. We're spread out, mm -hmm. um, especially I'm in a walk-in property in the forest. And so I'm really quite isolated, but but there's neighbors everywhere. Amazing. Uh, not that far away. And all of us are doing the same thing nice. and loving it. It's nice to have community. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Dawson City is really unique, I think, uh, of all the places I've lived and traveled to for and mostly because of the sense of community there and the support and the really great things that are happening um, there, both with the Trondekwitchen, the First Nations community, and in the settler community and their relations with each other, and also relations with the with the landscape and the, the environment around them. It's a really pretty progressive, little isolated, out of nowhere, or on the edge kind of community. Yeah, something that needs to happen more for sure. Mm -hmm. um, Where amazing things can happen. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, because you're so separated from the infrastructure and the, you know, the goings on and the politics of major centers. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what was the inspiration for the film? The inspiration was exactly that community, people within my community and friends and neighbors who are doing amazing work to help feed the local community and address um, everything from food security to food sovereignty to uh, land issues around land, land ownership and and um, what uh, and, and so the film explores these people's lives and their perspectives and their philosophies and their spiritual connections to the lands on which they live and, and thrive on and then in turn largely their relation then to the community that they support through their through their efforts. Right. So you mentioned food security as being an issue. So how vulnerable mm. is Dawson City to food shortage? Like if 
the road gets washed out, what happens? Yeah. How long, how long can you go? <laughs> <laughs> There's been sort of guesses as to that. And it depends on who you talk to. But, you know, the sort of, I guess, average thing is that we've probably got about three days worth of food in this, wow. the two stores that we have there. And people have things in their freezers and all that. But um, we're, we're, we have been isolated at times. Exactly what you said. The road got washed out and so the trucks couldn't come up. We're depend we really probably close to, you know, 95 to 99% dependent upon outside sources uh, for all of our, both all our consumables, uh, whether that be food or fuel or um, building materials and things like that. It's really, uh, it's it's a very fragile uh, situation, you know, and it's kind of like beyond even, I, I sometimes call it food insecurity. It's really <laughs> where we're at. <laughs> there is no food security mm -hmm. in this community. Um, but uh, we're, we're just, it's it, but it's the same thing for all everything that we have there, whether it's our communications or uh, energy needs or things like that. So it's, it's a, a fragile place, uh, you know, eight months, seven to eight months out of the year, it's the end of the road too. There's no connection. There's only a gravel road in the summer that goes into Alaska, which goes into even more isolated communities. So we are at the end of the road and there's an airport. So, I mean, things could be flown in in the case of, you know, extreme events, which are happening more often now, forest fires or floods or things cutting off the road. But we need to address this because there is this kind of false sense that's that's kind of an inheritance, a cultural inheritance of, you know, the northern self-sufficiency, you know, rugged individual kind of idea about ourselves there that isn't really true. It's it's a it's a old um, trope that people still hold on to. But when you look at the facts. We're dependent on everything from the, pretty well, everything from the outside. That's not to say that there aren't people who, I mean, myself included, who don't hunt for some of their own food or fish and grow their own food. That's a part of the culture there and the community, but it's, it's a, it's a pretty small relative to the overall population. Right. So is, is government trying to do anything to help solve this issue or is there any support for people mm. trying to, to make a difference? I think the tides are changing a bit, but as we see with so many other parts of our government, um, uh, nationally and in regional governments, they're not moving fast enough. And their ideas about how to address these kinds of issues are often, you know, uh, deeply entrenched in, in old colonial notions and settler uh, notions and the change that needs to happen, paradigm shifts that need to happen um, don't happen. <laughs> I, I, you know, I can't, I, I, there, there is work being done, but not, in a, not, I don't think at a, at a pace which is keeping up with the changes that we're seeing. I mean, and to put that into context, and you, you probably know this, is that in the Arctic and subarctic regions of Canada, especially actually in the Yukon, even they've said that internationally, um, we are experiencing climate change faster than anywhere else in the world. We, on average, the government did an analysis of uh, their weather data from the past, I think, 40 years. And I think it came out, I, I, pretty sure this is the fact the number that came out but the, the average temperature over that period of time over the year 
has increased by four degrees. Wow. That's average. The terrifying. We've, it's terrifying. <laughs> it's four times what you know is happening internationally. So it's happening at a very accelerated pace, and it's having impacts that are uh, completely tangible. And see, I've only lived there for twenty-two years, and I'm I've seen changes, dramatic changes, in weather patterns and in terms of those impacts and on the environment and the way in which we live there. And I think the answer to your question is that they're becoming conscious, but they're not conscious enough yet, and they're not taking action fast enough because we have these antiquated uh, ways in which we govern ourselves that aren't, um, that take time, just take too much time related to the emergency that we're facing. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that's frightening for me, and I think right. frightening for everybody, and especially I, I'm very frightened for uh, not frightened for, but I'm concerned about how that impacts your, our youth and uh, people in our community that um, are growing up with this kind of, you know, these stresses and, and how that is impacting them and their thoughts about the future. And yeah, I'm hoping that this film will elucidate some of that. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a, um, an impact film per se, but I think in subtle and poetic ways, it, will hopefully um, give people some positive messages about how we can uh, change or how we need to change. And the, the people that are in the film, I think, provide really great wisdom about that. And that's what we, that's what we wanted to focus on in the making of this film, to bring it back so, you know, to yeah. <laughs> the subject at hand. <laughs> bring it back to the people. Yeah. Right. So um, I, I've heard many opinions about this, but how do you think, climate change is going to affect the Yukon's ability to be more food secure? Is it going to, because there's some people that say, well, it's just going to be warmer. The climate's going to be better for agriculture. You know, I'm not sure if I really believe that. <laughs> so what do you think? Uh, yeah, I think, I think your, your skepticism is well-placed because I, my personal perception on it is, and take on it is that we don't know what's coming. And not only that, but there are so many chain reactions and knock-on effects of, you know, the simplest thing of like warming, global warming, that we are clueless to. And I think we see this in in the north. There are people that speak, you know, oh, well, it's great for Canada, you know, because it's going to be longer growing seasons, you know, <laughs> this sort of thing. And, and it's just like, well, what about drought? What about, you know, floods? What about forest fires? What about all the other things that are going to come along with that? that we're not factoring into the the plans, you know, the, how, how to plan for this. And it's a difficult thing to plan for because there is no answers. There's, I don't think, unless maybe you... <laughs> I, it's, yeah, so it's kind of like, how do we adapt to what we... I was part of a climate change adaptation planning sort of session about 10 years ago up in Dawson, um, just contributing as a public citizen that was concerned. And... My question was, well, what are we adapting to? We, you know, people talked about, oh, great. Well, maybe as ski hills close down south, people will get more tourists up here. You know, these kind of like <laughs> speculative, positive um, things of like, oh, we're going to benefit from this. And I'm like, I, you know, what, how can we even say that if we don't know what's coming? Right. Like, how, what are we going to adapt to? Yeah, so unpredictable. Right? I'm a commercial salmon fisher, and and you know it's impacting the the. We've seen incredible changes in the Yukon River. is a massive. It's three thousand kilometer watershed, and it's the longest salmon run in the world with the Chinook salmon, 
doing that complete trip, some of them. And they are very temperature sensitive species. And uh, uh, we've seen increased water temperatures in that river that are hitting points where, you know, I think it's safe to say that they're impacting the, sa the salmon runs and they're moving. The salmon are moving to colder waters and, and we're seeing fewer salmon. And that's an impact of a number of different, that's from a number of different factors, but the water temperatures and also water levels have been really changing in that river. And, um, and those impact salmon, which in turn, those salmon not spawning and going back to the spawning grounds impacts everything. It impacts the riparian zones and all the flora and fauna that depend upon them. Yeah, because salmon bring such an amazing source of nutrients back to the land every year. Absolutely. Yeah. For for everything, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. for everyone. They're so <laughs> and so we're seeing these changes in in the river, which are impacting, will impact the runs, and and so there's again one of those things of like, well, you know, we may have warmer temperatures, but it's are we going to have the salmon anymore? And and then in turn, you know, well, longer growing seasons are great, but we may be experiencing, we may experience droughts in certain areas. And then in turn, forest fires are going to obviously threaten a lot of these places as well, these food growing areas. Um, well, who knows? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I have no, no, no answers. And, um, I have a blend of skepticism and, 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 and morose about what's coming mixed with though, uh, some optimism that we can, if we address these things and start to really think about our our place in the in, in the natural world and change some very fundamental uh, philosophical and ideological and political um, spheres of our influence, uh, we can we can at least survive. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be great. That would, <laughs> that would be fun, wouldn't it? I would like survive that. what though is, is the question, right? And anyway, I I I, I do think, and I think the film as well, uh, hopefully um, instills a bit of that. I mean, there are some you know uh, some tr uh, some things that happen in the film, or things that are talked about where these impacts are really infect affecting people's lives and 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 their ability to grow food. But there's some really positive things happening up there as well in terms of it. To get back to the notion of food security and food sovereignty, uh, there are some real people doing some really great work up there and who are passionate and care about their community. And one of the great examples of that is the Trundakwichin farm. Um, the Trundakwichin are the uh, First Nations in that area. And um, they have taken uh, one of their land claim parcels and which was formerly uh, a farm back in up until I think the 1950s and have started a program of educating their citizens about agriculture and getting them back onto the land um, as a place of both um, healing and of uh, education and of addressing directly addressing food security in the region for everyone to um, and that to me is an incredible uh, feat and a project that I think is offers some really great promise for our community in terms of its stability and its food security. And, and they are being very, um, the Toronto Kitchen are being incredibly, um, progressive and taking action, immediate action, you know, not, 
like our government's talking about what could be done or what should be done or, you know, mm -hmm. where's the money going to come from and things like this. So I think hopefully people will leave the, the cinema uh, after watching the film with uh, some sense of positive change can happen and that there are people that are showing leadership in our, in our communities towards addressing these things and they need to be encouraged and they need to be funded and they need to be supported. Mm -hmm. Is there any support for small-scale farmers right now? There's not a lot. So that gets touched on a little bit in the film by a young couple who live in the woods and they have a birch syrup operation, but they, uh, to live on the land that they um, support themselves on with through birch syrup, uh, they needed to get an agricultural lease and begin to become farmers, which they have a certain bit of personal conflict with in relation to their their philosophy and their ethos. But they, uh, they, they not to pinpoint just them, but this happens throughout the Yukon is that there's, um, to a certain extent, uh, older notions about what agriculture is and what an agricultural operation should be and the scale that should be operating at to get funding from government agencies. So what David is saying here relates to the first episode of this podcast where farmers Bart and Tom were speaking to the regulations that the Yukon government imposes on new farmers that have government land leases. So the government requires them to clear a certain amount of land within a certain amount of time, and the parcels of land given out are usually really huge, making the whole process unfeasible for most new farmers. So the notions of what agriculture is in the eyes of the government isn't necessarily the best way to encourage people to start farming in the Yukon, especially small farmers. Okay, back to David now. And there's been a talk, and I think there's been work being done with a newer territorial government to address some of those problems with that. We've had, a, you know, in the 70s, and I think almost into the 80s, there was a lot of land grab happening through agricultural leases um, where people weren't, their intention was never to really be food producers or growers. And they were given, you know, 100, 150 acres and they had to clear a certain percentage of that and have an emergent crop. And that model still basically exists. And what happens is that once you have an emergent crop, your, your first season or so after clearing the land, um, you get your title. And people then stopped growing things after that mm -hmm. because all they wanted was 150 acres to themselves and maybe a few horses or something and so there there have been cases where that's happened a fair bit it's not as it, it can't ha it doesn't happen as much anymore but it's still cases of that happening and so what needs to happen is it needs to be a shift from that notion that um to to be a, a legitimate farm you need to have x number of acres developed uh, without looking at how that is used and and the effectiveness and efficacy of the land uh, being for food production being more of a criteria rather than the, the size scale and you know the machinery and all that you use to clear the land um, so there are a number of younger people who are struggling to get support to become food producers um, and agrarians but they don't want to do it on this massive scale they're wanting to do smaller scale operations. They're wanting to explore, um, I hate to use the word alternative agriculture, but I mean, traditional, agri I would say traditional agriculture, organic practices and, you know, um, more progressive and more uh, custodial relationships with the land in terms of food production. 
Um, but the government is slow to take up on that and also to address that and how that also fits in to uh, succession and things like that. Big farms, I grew up in farming country and uh, there's nobody that I know of of my generation that took over the parents' farm. That's just disappearing, that sense of the family farm. A lot of it because they, they become these very big, onerous operations and younger people don't have the financial means to buy into this. Right, and, and debt so. is a big thing too. Farmers get into such huge debt with all the the new machinery they have to use and the seeds they have to buy, and it's just like a it's a treadmill, right? It's they a can treadmill. never catch up. <laughs> there's a huge, as well, I, I didn't know about this until doing research for the film, but there's a huge concern specifically in the States, but I suspect in Canada as well, about uh, de depression and suicide amongst farmers. Mm -hmm. And there's networks now, counseling networks, free counseling networks for farmers to phone in to be able to um, get some help. And that I didn't know that that was, I you know I worked on farms when I was a kid and that, and you know, it's a tough life, but it's in this modern age, the debt load and things like that that have increased. There's people that are really suffering, mm -hmm. you know, and they're suffering more than just financially. They're suffering psychologically from the workload and the, yeah, the lack of, I guess, certainty or security in what, what their future will be. And so the young people who grew up in these farms of families go, they see this, they see the, how difficult it is. They've worked hard as well, but they see the insecurity of it and go, hmm, no, I'm going to become a vet or I'm going to go mm -hmm. into construction or do something like that, you know, or nursing. And some of them work off farm and then continue to support a farm too, which is a big issue with farming in our country. And I think around the world is that so many, so often somebody has to work off farm just to keep the farm going. Yeah, absolutely. So these, what we're just talking about, smaller scale farms are really like, I think governments need to be really looking into uh, supporting those and acknowledging them, the role they play in food security and in the economics of farming and also look at the realities, I think, for young people that are interested in doing that and how to support them to become food producers. Because we're out there. We're yes. definitely out there. There's a lot of us that want to get into it, but we just don't have the means to because land access is just way too difficult, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's not just um, it, it's not just in the Yukon that land access is difficult. It's, it's almost everywhere, even... Even here? Even Oh, absolutely. It's yeah. almost impossible to get land here. It's just, it's way too much money. Mm -hmm. And on the prairies, the problem is... Um, um, like you said, farmers are retiring and their kids don't want to take over the land. And it's land that's been in their families for generations. So now it's worth, you know, a huge amount of money. And young farmers can't afford that land. So it's getting sold to more really big conventional farmers that can just, you know, expand their enterprises. <laughs> yeah, and then they become big agribusiness. Exactly. Monoculture. Exactly. Things that are disastrous for us environmentally it's been proven over and over again i mean i think you may know this better than i do but i from my understanding agriculture is the second largest polluter yep. in the world absolutely so it's compounding mm -hmm. you know we're we're creating this scenario where corporate farming and and you know agribusiness is the only alternative because 
we we're not making it possible for young people to have a successful life and 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 be able to support themselves off of farms and and then when we do that when we go that corporate route go okay well it's going to become corporate farming then we have this huge environmental impact from that that goes unabated that causes even more problems you yeah know, dead zones in the ocean and seas and you know from runoff and tainted water tables and yeah it's really it's scary it's scary, it's really scary. <laughs> but we're both still smiling so <laughs> <laughs> laughing so. but yeah. but it is and and for somebody of your generation i really i my heart goes out to you and compassion goes out to those young people that are interested and and i have the passion to do it but we're just we're not there to support you you know as we saw in the steps of the legislature today i mean our, our government's notions about people's relationship to land and their sovereignty over which sovereign soil is a bit about their sovereignty over, in regards to that land is is uh it's, it's crazy that we're having mm -hmm. to fight these fights and that the first nations are having to fight the way they have to fight to get you know recognition that that they've been on those lands for they, thousands and thousands of years yeah just to give you a little bit of context, what David is referring to when he's talking about what was happening at the legislature is the nationwide protests that have been happening in support of the Wet'suwet'en peoples in northern BC. To put it very simply, they're standing up to fight for sovereignty over their traditional territories, but of course the issue is much more complex than that. The day that we had scheduled the interview happened to be the day that Indigenous youth, along with hundreds of supporters, participated in a massive protest at the Victoria Legislature grounds, standing in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en. When it comes down to it, it's all about land. And it's about <laughs> land, yeah. Yeah, and this is a, a bit about um, what my reasons were for uh, making this film, was an exploration of where that that line divides in terms of i think between settler and indigenous relations to land because i think they're very very different mm -hmm. and also what are the origins of some of the origins of the settler um ideas about land and land ownership i have myself very much a, a conflicting relation to the notion of ownership and especially over land and i i live in a wilderness area but i don't I don't own the land. I mean, I technically have title to it, but I see myself as maybe uh, like I have the, the honor and the, and the privilege of being able to live in this land for hopefully the rest of my life and, and be able to, in that time, uh, take a custodial kind of relation with, with that land and, and be able to subsist off of it to a certain extent um, through gardens and things like that. But but I find the notion I of ownership you know and that kind of your kingdom you know which happens with people when they start to you know get that i guess it's kind of like a gold fever kind of thing a land fever you know where they they own it it's theirs and that makes them feel secure and so the film to a certain extent is a kind of quest to explore some of those ideas no answers in the film just get give people a heads up in case they come and see it it's more posing questions i think and those questions are at the heart of my engagement with the with the topic and the themes um so and part of the film too is a is a i think i feel very strongly that we need to start um 
as settler people, paying much more attention to traditional indigenous relationships to land and learn from that and and begin to integrate that into our consciousness and into our policies and into our being. And um, I think with the Trontic Witchen farm that features in the film, for me, it's a it's an example of the meeting of those worlds and, and yeah. how do we how do we come together? Because farming has never been like farming as we see it has never really been part of indigenous ways of being. So I found it really interesting that they're kind of we're merging cultures, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my ancestors have been farmers for you know generations, um, mm-hmm. and and it's been passed down to me. But I'm sure that indigenous peoples have a very different um, view of farming the way we see it. And it was mentioned in the movie that a lot of indigenous people have a negative connotation with farming. So yeah, it was really interesting to witness that in the movie. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's a part of uh, something that we I think as settler culture don't maybe acknowledge or want to recognize. But agriculture and agrarianism is the fine wedge of colonialism. Absolutely. And the land grabs and the land theft that happened in this country from indigenous people was primarily for agricultural purposes. And we need to face up to that. We need to take a look at that and examine it and be critical of it and not to necessarily dismiss the the contributions that many farming families made and and to the establishment of the country, but, you know, and, and not to demean family farms or anything like that but we need to i think take a look a little more critically at um what was done on a policy level nationally um and how that fits into the program of colonization and and how um people may react negatively to agriculture and agrarianism because of that understandably so you know it was and and for i mean i i cannot speak for and do not speak for any indigenous peoples at all but i do know uh, from my own personal experience of growing up in in an indigenous community um, at one point in my life that the impacts of residential school part of that impact was uh, a negative perspective on agriculture because of forced labor you know slave labor essentially at residential schools in terms of uh growing food growing food not only for the school population who were in many cases starved and malnourished um but it was food that was grown to, to sell to the surrounding community from free labor you know so this is something a part of our history our colonial history that also you know we need to we need to take responsibility for and, and to and to examine and look at and for a lot of indigenous people um that my friend um and person in the film jackie told me about or spoke to, and I think it's all right for me to say this, that she said it's negative because in in the residential school system, they were forced into growing food. And so it's, it's people's negative reaction to a farm is, and farming and that relationship to land, especially to animals, goes against both a spiritual uh, relationship to the natural world, um, but also this very much a social impact of and the ongoing social impacts of residential the residential school system 
And so it's, yeah, I, I, I don't feel comfortable speaking to that any further than to say that, you know, I, I understand why that would be for those reasons. It's really, and it's troubling to me too, you know, as a person who, um, you know, I hunt and fish and for food, um, at times. And I could see where raising an animal to, um, raising an animal to kill it is, is goes against some very deep held spiritual, um, connections to the animal world. And that's troubling. I, I, one of the people in the film, Berwin, um, speaks to the raising pigs and, um, he can't shoot them. He's just like, I can't, I, I get the shakes. He says, so his partner, Sylvia has to do it with a, <laughs> with a friend. And I was there with them and helping them as well, um, for a slaughter one fall. And, uh, I felt I totally sympathized with them. I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could raise, I never worked on farms where there was a lot of livestock, but I, yeah, I would have a really hard time. Yeah, I thought so too. During that part of the movie, I was like, I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I really did yeah. sympathize with him. So. so if you take that on a, a larger scale and think about then how about that speaks to about your spiritual connection to animals yeah. that you've raised, it's, it's, it's really problematic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it makes me question that part of our lives and agriculture and, and eating meat and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so speaking of animals, um, there is a lot of amazing shots of animals in the movie, mm. and they're they were really put in the spotlight. Do you have any particular reason for deciding to do that? Yeah, <laughs> um, well, animals have always played a large part in my role. I, I always felt at, at times, I, I guess, yeah, I've felt a at times a stronger connection to the animal world than the human world. <laughs> um, uh, I, I I love animals, and and I. Um, have have had very great relations both with pets and with wild animals as well um and continue to and so uh that's part and parcel a personal um reflection i guess in terms of uh feeling very connected on a on a really fundamental way with the the natural world um but it also speaks to i uh hopefully a kind of what i feel is a is a is a way in which we can come closer to and reconnect with um, the natural world. <laughs> you know, our environments is is through through animals and through our relationships with animals. Uh, Jackie Olson speaks at the beginning of the very the very beginning of the film. Actually, deals with that. It addresses that question of uh, a, a, a past connection between the Trondrakwichan hunters and ravens and how ravens you, you the hunters worked with the ravens and the ravens helped the hunters hunt so they were they had this very deep uh connection and she feels that that's become lost and that we're needing to find our way back to that and not to give too much away but the film starts to a certain extent with that story and about a relationship to ravens and ravens are a motif throughout the whole film um, as are other animals, but for me, ravens are very, very special creature and a very special relationship, human-animal relationship there that exists in 
all cultures that have had contact with them or all the corvids actually and um and but it gets contrasted at the end of the film something that we put in intentionally um i don't know if people get i'm not Hopefully I'm not giving anything away, but near the end of the film, uh, one of the settler people in the film talks about um, crows and having met a crow that was trained to speak. And the thing that the crow speaks that he says he remembers most is the crow saying, give me a piece of toast. <laughs> so we have this bookend of contrasting relations where the Trondic Witchen have this relationship to the raven as a, as a guide and a co um, hunter relationship, you know, where it's a benefit for the humans and for the, for the ravens to work together on the hunt to the one where I think exemplifies a kind of settler notion or Western Judeo-Christian, however you want to place it, uh, uh, relationship to the animal world where we train and control and then force this animal, not, well, yeah, we train this animal to beg for food from us. And oh, so those are sort of philosophical extremes of that the film explores in between. And so the animals within the film play a symbolic, but also a integral part in examining our relationship to nature. And the dogs are all named at the end. And yeah, I, I loved dogs. that. that <laughs> yeah, yeah, everybody has dogs up there too. So <laughs> I thought the dogs need full credit because absolutely. Yeah. They're a big part of, <laughs> of our lives up there. As they are down here for people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's always important to remember that we're animals too, you know? We can't be separated from them. <laughs> and that's a key thing for me. Yeah, we're not superior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're the same. And yeah. we're the same as all of it. Yeah. And we're, we're dependent on it. And we need to start. No, we need. I think there's a lot of people that know that. I think we need to reconnect with that. Absolutely. We need to bring ourselves down a notch or two in the notion of superior beings yeah right we have a lot to learn yeah and they can teach i us have a lot, lot to learn <laughs> <laughs> it makes two of us yeah um so going back to food sovereignty a bit mm -hmm. um what do you think it would take for for dawson city or the yukon to become more food secure in the future hmm yeah, there's there's lots being done i mean there is to and and to the government's credit i mean i think they are you know working towards um they're starting to acknowledge that there's that, that it is becoming an increasing issue and helping but i think it's really uh it's creating an environment in which i think and the means by which younger people can get involved in um agriculture on all different levels you know from right from you know small market gardens through to livestock operations through to grain farms and things like that I think we need to support them. I think we need to make things more uh, financially uh, secure and and make it more available, make land. Um, I shouldn't say like not necessarily make land more available, but make it uh, streamline the processes by which people have to go uh, through the processes have to go through to, to gain land to to do agriculture. Um, so there's that. There's also uh, diversity. We need to have a little bit more diversity in terms of what's being grown. I mean, in the Klondike region, it's really great. There's You can grow so many different things, but we don't. Uh, only one of the people in the film is really exploring growing grains, mm -hmm. and he wants to delve more into that and actually start producing organic flowers. 
and that he grows rye, oats, barley, and he's grown spring wheat and things like that as well. And shown, and it's been shown in the past too, you can successfully grow grain in the north. Um, but there isn't currently the feed for chickens and pigs and things like that. Is Most of it's shipped up from down south, but some of it is coming from a grain farm, feed farm in the Whitehorse area. We need to have that. And I guess I'll speak specifically to the Klondike because that's really what the film deals with and, and the area, the region I'm from. Um, so there's fodder crops, basically, uh, that need to be uh, developed to support um, livestock and in turn livestock can provide fertilizer because the ground the soil like anywhere else does need to be supplemented and that will help reduce the uh, reliance upon fertilizers coming in from outside being shipped in from outside and then the other part of the puzzle that still needs to be solved in the region is uh, winter storage mm. which um, Otto again a fellow who is features quite largely in the film has addressed just for his own operation. He's he sunk a, a shipping container about 12 feet into the ground and super insulated it. And uh, just from thermal heat and a little bit of supplement heat that he brings in with a little 12 volt fan that's hooked into a duct that goes up to the, the top of his cabin. So he's, he lives off grid and wood fired cabin. And so in the winters, he just draws in heat from excess heat, pretty much from the top of his cabin down into this container, the shipping container, wow. where he stores vegetables <laughs> all winter long in, you know, in, in a place that gets down to minus 50 um, on occasion and sells us fresh vegetables all throughout the winter. That's incredible. Yeah. It's really amazing. So the scenes in the film that you saw with him with the cabbages, like yeah. five months, <laughs> he's got carrots and potatoes and sometimes rutabagas left in like June. Wow. That he's selling still that are like, it's like they were picked straight out of the ground. Amazing. He doesn't wash them. He keeps them like those ones are, you know, he keeps them covered in dirt for storage purposes. And then he's managed, he manages to maintain this like three degree, two degree, three degree uh, ambient temperature in this shipping container that he's backfilled with sod. He's used like sawdust from his mill and all this, you know, to um, super insulate it. And then, yeah, you go down there. And so in the film, we take you down there and, and see a little scene and fun little scene with him selling to the local people um, rutabagas, carrots, cabbages kohlrabis you know like it's amazing what it grows too amazing yeah so tasty I bet. <laughs> so tasty in the middle of winter you know january minus 40 whatever being able to make a fresh coleslaw with his cabbages you know and eat beautiful potatoes and vegetables root vegetables and all that all winter long it's just been a real amazing thing but we need that sorry to get back to your question we need that <laughs> on a it, that's missing on a larger scale like, like a community scale and the Trondic Witchen are looking at doing that on their farm they're looking at doing a larger root cellar um, passive root cellar um, facility um, and they're at the forefront I think of doing a lot of those things there's a they recently got awarded um, a, um, northern uh, I'm gonna misquote this now northern inspirations award I think uh, and which was matched by a federal government uh, funding for a million dollar three season greenhouse. Wow. They now have their chicken coop and grading station all figured out and complete, which was in process while we were making the film. And they're selling eggs commercially now into the community, into the restaurants. And uh, these were these are smaller pieces as well that were sort of missing from us being more foods, to get back to your question, of being more food secure. Um, I don't know if we'll ever get, you know, to the point of 
100% <laughs> food secure. Uh, it's just with the way things are and people's eating habits and consumer habits mm -hmm. and things like that. There's, I mean, that's they want something mandarin going, oranges in the middle of winter. They right? want mandarin oranges in the middle of winter. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> You're going to bring mandarin oranges in from China. Yeah. Um, that might not be the case though. I mean, you might be able to, <laughs> who knows? So anyway, I think, I think they're, I think they're really positive things, but a big part of it though is, I mean, the, one of the operations which we see in the film, Grant Dowdell and Karen Digby on an island, amazing market garden that he's run since the late 70s. He's retired now and nobody's taking over his operation, his farm. They're moving into town. And then there's another older couple as well, the Votes, who have been running a really incredible market garden operation for quite a number of years, but they're getting older and they're retiring. I don't know if anybody's taking over that one. So that question of succession and also um, making it possible and plausible for young people to get involved in agriculture is those are really big ones. And one of the things that um, Otto and I have talked about and have since I I grew up in a family, my father ran co-ops, uh, a small town cooperatives in the prairies and the Northwest Territories. And I grew up working in co-ops and so I know a fair bit about them and, and that's kind of fallen by the wayside as a, as a means by which people can work collectively and cooperatively um, to create agricultural operations. Um, and that's something that's been coming up in readings I've been doing more recently is uh, an area that needs to be looked at, especially for young people who don't necessarily want to have those kinds of hardships mm -hmm. that come with like the notion of the family farm, you know, and doing it on your own and doing everything on your own. Um, and one of the things that's that especially a farmer in the United States, an independent farmer who is advocating for this approach of collective, more collective approaches is that people will then be able to, if you do it right and set it up right, people can actually make a wage, <laughs> a living wage. They can do this work that they feel passionate about and that workload is spread out more. So there's less stress and strain as we spoke to earlier on, on individuals, families and family members and the pressures that come with that. Mm -hmm. And it also, I think, allows people, yeah, I worked on farms a bit when I was kids and uh, as a kid and then had family friends who had farms and that I stayed on and um, there's a lot of hardship. I mean, there's lots of beautiful things about it, but there are, there are a lot of hardships and there's a lot of uh, insecurity as mm -hmm. well because especially when family farms get forced into this monoculture approach, as Otto says in the film, you just, when you just depend, when you're a farmer and you just depend on one crop, he says, I bet you, you know, <laughs> he says, you're going to have sleepless nights. He said, because if you, if it's not diverse, something happens to that one crop, which happens all the time, um, whether it's a, a, an insect or a fungus or a poor water year or something like that, a bad growing year, then it's like, the whole thing can come crashing down very quickly. And Otto in the film is a great, and, and in person is a really a huge advocate for diversity. Diversity not only in terms of what you're growing, but also the ways in which you um, use land and ro not only rotating crops and that sort of thing and having fallow years, but also he talks to the idea of breaking up plots of agricultural land with natural corridors for animals, uh, wetlands. And he says, these things are really important to maintaining a balance in terms of insects and f you have being less reliant upon insecticides and fungicides and things like mm -hmm. that. 
So not separating your farm from the ecosystems around it. Absolutely. He's, he, he's, he takes a very, it's interesting because he, he comes from East Germany originally and he, he's a third generation university trained horticulturalist. Um, but he, he takes a very holistic approach to land use and, and uh, how to farm. It's, he's fast. He's so knowledgeable. <laughs> Never a dull moment uh, spending time with with him. He's a very funny man, but also incredibly knowledgeable. And and what the film part of the reason for us making this film, the the producer Andrew Connors and I, he lives in Whitehorse, was that we recognize that there could be a, an opportunity here for this to to create a record of some of this knowledge because these people are getting older and mm. they're retiring and, and or dying. Um, and there's knowledge that's being lost. And how do we, how do we, we need to have that continuity and without family farms, without that succession, there's a knowledge about that land and the particular characteristics and, and ecology of that, that land that this family's lived on, you know, for two or three generations, as you, as you said, that disappears, can disappear in one generation because yeah. The kids don't want to carry on. It's Sorry, I'm talking knowledge. a lot here. No, so. it's okay. Yeah. It's great. It's a really important knowledge to keep a hold of. Yeah. So we, it was actually part of our intention and, and probably will be now that the film's finished is to, uh, we, we did extensive interviews with all everybody that's in the film and some other people as well that we'd like to work with the Yukon Archives to ensure that there's at least an audio a record of, of some of these conversations and what these people's lives were like and the wisdom that they have to pass on. That's great. It's good to hear. Mm. So what's the main thing that you want audiences to take away from this film? Good question. <laughs> main thing. Um, I would think just a, a, maybe a that they take away a kind of reflection or a point of reflection on their own relations to their environment mm. and their dependency on it. And in turn, with that, um, an appreciation for um, the natural environment and, and the role it plays in all of our lives. And that we're a part of it, as we spoke to earlier on, that we're all a part of it. And we need to work together to ensure that we um, take it, move away from our exploitative approach to land and much more move towards a much more custodial one because we're not going to survive, I don't feel or think, we're going to survive as a species if we don't. Yeah. Yeah, so important. Yeah. Really important to think about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so hopefully people think about that a little bit and ways in which they can support local, local food producers and the people in, and appreciate more of the people who have dedicated their lives, but sometimes a great sacrifice mm -hmm. as well to ensure that we can have access to good, healthy food. Yeah, I, I've always thought that farmers are often the most undervalued, underappreciated, underpaid people in the world, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they're the ones that are feeding us. So, yeah. sad. It's sad, <laughs> yeah. And it's sad when you hear stories about farmers that end their lives because they can't deal with it anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, that's... Oh, that's a sorry. No, I don't want to end on a, <laughs> a down note. But I mean, it's 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 really important. I think to yeah, uh, and so things like if people head out of there and begin to take a closer look at you know like community supported agriculture projects, and they probably many people already do that. Mm -hmm. But if they can 
people encourage other people to do that. I think that, that those kinds of um, infrastructures are really important, you know, financially and, and just keeping, keeping those people uh, going. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's really important. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's great to see, I mean, in cities like I suspect Victoria, but I know in Vancouver as well, but I'm pretty sure in Victoria, like those programs, those CSA programs are really oh, yeah, catching everywhere. on. And yeah. yeah, and it's great to see a lot more local restaurants that are focusing on local food. And, and that I think are, those are super positive things that, that can take us <laughs> to that point of survival. Absolutely. You know? That was just one part of the puzzle, but the things and I think you know younger people are really I have great um, uh, faith in in them and and that that they're taking control of the of the of our future and and making sure that the right things are done to to ensure survival and ensure it's, it's more than just survival ensure um, because as you know it's pointed out quite often the environmental movement isn't just about environmentalism it's also about human rights and you know oh, yeah, and it's huge huge it's inequality all it's all connected yeah and i think that's a really um great thing to see that coming to the forefront of discussions with younger people and their consciousness about that and the interconnectivity of things something that i yeah it gives me great hope Good. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just hope there's people of my generation, you know, getting into their, you know, 40s and 50s and 60s that, that uh, think about these things. Mm -hmm. I think there are, but need to take action. Thanks for listening to Organic Matters. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to know more about David's film, visit SovereignSoilFilm.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast, and if you want to leave a comment, I'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to keep an eye out for upcoming episodes. Until then, take care and keep growing. <laughs>